Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Alana McGalrick, Chief Nursing Officer of Paragen, about using technology to improve maternal health and childbirth. Now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Alana McGalrick, Chief Nursing Officer of Paragen. How are you doing, Alana? I'm well. How are you? Good. And we're going to talk about improving maternal health in childbirth um, but first off, I wanted to start off by having you sort of tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and tell me about uh, Paragen as well. Okay, great. Um, well, I am a labor and delivery nurse um, by education. I have been in nursing for, oh gosh, 25 years. Um, my specialty has been the perinatal space um, for most of that, I have, um, you know, self-appointed myself as a fetal monitoring geek. I just love the process of the interpartum stage, which is labor and delivery. And I love what the mom and baby tell us during that process. So I've spent most of my time looking at those those types of things and, and specifically in that area of um, nursing. Um, I received my doctorate from Cal State Fullerton in 2018, and um, my capstone project was specifically on early warning systems and labor and delivery. So, um, you know, that fit very well with finding a position here on the Paragen team. Mm-hmm. And did you want me to talk a little bit about Paragen? Please. Okay. So Paragen is a an advanced perinatal um, system company, and what we do is we're really on the leading edge of artificial intelligence in perinatal um, medicine. So what we specifically look at is artificially um, intelligence-driven clinical decision support tools. And it is in our product vigilance that we have shown that AI-driven uh, um, automated objective assessment of patient physiological parameters can lead to assisting the clinicians at the bedside with making earlier determination of patient care. So having the ability to be notified um, that the patient may be uh, going down the path of a worsening condition and deteriorating, and we can recognize that earlier than um, than having uh, no AI-driven technology at the bedside at all. So um, in a nutshell, that's what Vigilance does. In a single pane of glass, one single patient view, we can see um, the physiological parameters for both of the fetus and the maternal patient all presented and trending on one view on, on a computer screen, and then assisting our staff um, with being able to identify those patients that, that may be um, trending toward the abnormal. All right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the maternal mortality crisis in the U.S. Um, can you give us a little perspective on sort of how it came about and, you know, how bad things are right now? So, unfortunately, um, despite our access to probably the best uh, medicine, um, science, and research that the world has to offer here in the United States, um, our maternal morbidity and mortality rate is one of the leading uh, causes in the well-developed nations. So, um, unfortunately, we don't want to be leading the race in those numbers, um, but we are. And what we're finding is that through the literature, approximately 50% of those um, mortality, uh, pregnancy-related mortality, um, are attributed to preventable situations. So, 
you know, that being said, if a patient is, is developing a worsening condition, we are not intervening early enough, we as the clinicians at the bedside, and so those patients, they're not, um, their, their care isn't being diverted uh, in a timely manner, and um, we're having poor outcomes. And, you know, you mentioned you've been, you know, working in this field for about 25 years. Has it, has this been getting worse or is it kind of just not improving? How, how you know, where do things stand compared to how they were when you started? So interestingly enough, when I first started, our high-risk patients were, were really high-risk patients. Um, those were the ones that came in with, you know, a, a severe condition um, that was associated with their pregnancy. So in a sense, caused by their pregnancy and they were considered high risk. Our multiples were considered high risk. What we have seen now and what the trend is showing is that our patients are no longer um, coming in young and healthy. We're seeing an aging demographic. We're seeing that their, um, their health condition is, is um, associated with chronic medical conditions. So more of our patients now have obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, specifically hypertension, um, prior to becoming pregnant. And because of that, um, once they are pregnant, it just seems to exacerbate that previous, um, we're calling them comorbidities, um, that chronic medical condition to a point where it physiologically stresses the pregnant patient. So they are not considered healthy once they are pregnant. And um, that is, is one of the leading causes of our maternal morbidity and mortality rate. So how can technology help to improve outcomes in this area? So, so with our patients aging um, and, and having uh, other socioeconomic um, factors that attribute to their access to care, their ability to change their lifestyle, um, parameters and, and then having these chronic conditions associated with their pregnancy, you know, it allows the clinician to have that second pair of eyes at the bedside and having a very clear, objective, quantitative approach to assessing the physiological parameters that are being generated from the fetus and the maternal patient. And so with the artificial intelligence um, driven module of vigilance, it gives us the ability to have those calculations up in front of us. And so when we come in and we're doing our visual assessment of the patient, so that visual interpretation at the bedside, it gives us the numbers to justify what we're seeing on the screen. So allowing us to make a very informed uh, decision at the bedside and, and in association with our uh, delivering clinicians. So that collaboration is just reinforced with both the visual human interpretation and that calculated quantifiable um, justification that's being presented in front of us. Um, and, and how widespread is the use of this technology right now? Um, is it still kind of in its early stages, would you say? So, so we've been around, Peritin's been around for um, two, a little over two decades now. And, and originally the product was built in, so Vigilance, that chassis was built into um, our original product, was, which was Pericom, um, now known as PeriWatch. And it was our surveillance and documentation system. So that means that the monitors that we put on mom's belly during labor, it generates information to a screen that we see as the fetal heart and then the uterine contractions. And so um, when it originated, that chassis of Vigilance 
originated, it was a clinical decision-making tool. It gave you the information that helps with assessment and interpretation of that fetal heart event and the uterine contractions for mom. What we did was we took vigilance and separated it so that it's its own product. So you didn't need to replace your current fetal surveillance and documentation system. You could just put our software now over top and it reads the same information that's coming from your surveillance and documentation system and still provides you with that objective quantifiable data that you couldn't get before from the, an original, you know, from the original, um, your original fetal surveillance and documentation system. Mm -hmm. So we're in over 380 clients right now, which includes some very large, um, large healthcare organizations and academic centers. Um, and so vigilance itself is now starting, you know, to get a, see a really nice uptake because it's separated out from our original package, which was the Terry Watch surveillance and documentation. And uh, one of the places that your uh, software is is MedStar Health in Maryland, correct? Um, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how they've done some, they've had some good results uh, from using um, your software. I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about sort of, you know, what they found. So, so MedStar is a unique client, and, and we have been um, very grateful and, and fortunate to have a very good partner um, with MedStar. And we recently did, um, they had acquired a few additional facilities, so we just recently put them all up on um, vigilance as well. They were able to um, do a 10-year study on the impact of, of a number of process improvement um, strategies, and one was, you know, the original chassis of vigilance, and seeing if they could impact any of those key performance indicators that they had selected um, to to improve maternal and fetal uh, morbidity and mortality at their um, at their healthcare system, and so they did find that they did um, have a 50% uh, decline in their NICU admissions. So when we're talking NICU, it's the neonatal intensive care unit, and it's those babies that they unanticipated, right? You know, if you're having a sick mom that that baby may end up in the NICU because mom was sick prior to coming in. Right. So she might not have had a healthy pregnancy. So we expect to see that baby. In the 50% decline in, uh, decrease in their NICU admissions, it was in those babies that they didn't expect to see that were being admitted to the NICU. So something during the intrapartum stage caused them to be there. It could have been oxygen deprivation or a hypoxic ischemic event. Um, but it was unexpected. So they were able to see, you know, a dramatic drop off in that number. They also saw their C-section rate stabilize. So that may sound, um, you know, you could go equivocal, right? You're like, well, it just stabilized. It didn't decrease. But, you know, C-sections are called because a physician is uncomfortable with how the maternal and fetal patient are responding to the stresses of labor. Mm -hmm. So that is the clinician's decision. And you cannot, you know, you're not going to argue with a, cl a clinician's decision on, on whether or not they're going to call a C-section. But what they saw was that the rate stabilized. They didn't see an increase, which most of the country has seen. Even recently, we we're seeing increases in the national C-section rate because they were able to interpret from the quantifiable data that was being presented by Vigilance that the patient was actually not trending in a worsening condition and that they didn't need to intervene too early with a surgical procedure and they could let the patient labor. And we have three parameters that we look at. We look at the fetal heart rate and uterine contractions, 
we look at the vital signs from the maternal patient, and we also look at her labor progress through our um, through Curve. And Curve um, tracks her labor based on whether she's going in an abnormal progression or a normal progression. So taking those three sections, they were able to determine, you know, a, a very good course of um, action for that patient and stabilize their C-section rates. They were also able, so another key performance indicator that they used was, you know, how many times we're using extreme measures to resuscitate a newborn. Mm -hmm. And they were able to reduce that as well and see that their number of babies requiring excessive resuscitation at delivery had a, had a decline as well. So, so those are just three key KPIs, key performance indicators that they used um, during that study. And we're seeing that across other clients as well. Specifically, our admissions to the NICU for those well babies is, is um, being impacted. And we're also seeing C-section rates stabilizing. And if it's not, then they're able to go in and see why that isn't being impacted in, in, a, in a more fruitful manner because the machine can tell them. So um, certainly very promising. And, and again, MedStar has been a, a fantastic partner for us. Uh, and they also saw some um drops in uh, malpractice payouts, correct? They did. And so malpractice, um, you know, that's, that's always a very, um, uh, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have with a healthcare organization. I'm sure you found in, in some of your other discussions that, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to get people to open up <laughs> on how many open cases they have, how many they've closed, what their litigation, you know, costs were associated with case payouts, et cetera. And, Obstetrics is the second highest, you know, leading uh, service line as far as litigation. We seem to be very popular right behind um, the OR, so anesthesia and then any surgical procedures. And we can see that just by the data and, and the literature that's out there. And of course, the Joint Commission has, has certainly put in some stop gaps in order to prevent some of these errors from occurring because we could see that they were universal. Um, in obstetrics, because it's a, um, it's a waiting game because mom's in labor, you know, you really are dependent upon what mom is telling you, you know, based on her physiological parameters. And then the, what I've coined the invisible patient, which is the fetus, which we can't see. And we can only tell by their, um, you know, their heartbeat events that they project onto the screen, right? And if you've ever seen a fetal strip, it's literally like a little squiggly line on a piece of paper. And that's how we interpret whether the patient is, is tolerating labor or not. So, so that leads, you know, into obstetrics being, you know, an area that, you know, can have the potential to po have poorer outcomes than any of the other areas in the hospital, like med surge or even critical care when you do a comparison across service lines. And so, again, MedStar very graciously was able to show that their, through their data, that their litigation costs dramatically reduced. And that has a, a consequential effect across who their insurers are, who their um, who their secondary insurers are, because they're seeing that they don't have to have, you know, if they're not having the, their bigger payouts with these cases, and I'm sure you've seen the big case media likes to cover those mm -hmm. and say what those payouts were, you know, if you're not having those because you're intervening earlier and preventing those poor outcomes, then then you've proven that that the technology is working at the bedside and. I wish that more healthcare organizations would would be as gracious and share, you know, that type of data. But it's not that easy to get, and um, 
and again, the, the MedStar was, was very nice in sharing that information because again, it's a bragging point for them as well. Right. Right. Um, you know, you're talking about labor and delivery nurses and, and obviously their, you know, their jobs are, you know, super stressful. Um, what, what can we do as an industry to help L and D nurses and, and sort of, and why, why are, are their jobs? So just so, so under the gun. So, okay, so, you know, obviously I'm a labor and delivery nurse, so I have some bias <laughs> to labor and delivery. Um, I think it's the best specialty um, that you could be in as far as nursing is concerned. I think that we go into it because there's a sense of autonomy and that you're caring for not one patient but two at the same time. Um, and there's some sense of accomplishment at the end when you have a, you know, a safe and healthy delivery. Um, so there's no better place for me uh, to work. But I think the, the stress that comes with working in that area are just those things that I loved about it, right? You're caring for two patients and one is completely invisible. So I'm dependent upon that baby to tell me on a squiggly line what's going on and how that baby is tolerating the stressors of labor. Um, and, and your ability to interpret what that is telling you is where you're going to make your decision making and we're finding that you know just nursing in general is suffering from the nursing shortage you know that was um, predicted and then also that we're seeing a huge turnover rate because staff isn't staying in those positions as long as they were previously so they they you know new grads are coming in and, and leaving at, at the end of their 18 month contract and deciding that they're going to go somewhere else for more money and so we can't retain experienced staff at the bedside. So then that experienced staff that stayed is now working with a lot of younger, inexperienced nursing staff who are caring for a very high-risk patient population. So that being said, artificial intelligence, um, clinical decision support tools like vigilance operating at the bedside gives them a sense of um, uh, comfort because they're no longer alone. They have a second pair of eyes that is watching their strip with them and assist them with making, you know, appropriate, timely decisions um, for the patient or patients that they're caring for. Only one of our states here in the United States have mandated staffing ratios. The rest are allowed to, to staff in a way that they seem, they seem appropriate. So, you know, those things also contribute to, to nursing stress and burnout at the bedside in our specific area. Uh, are, are you optimistic that things are going to improve, uh, you know, as the years roll on? Well, um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> and I can say from, <laughs> there's a couple of things there. Um, our nursing shortage needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, what we've tried to do is, is um, we've, we've put in place, so there's a lot of foundations that have um, put in uh, scholarship funds and and those things to get more programs to educate um, nursing to become professors, right? So there's, you know, my specific program, you know, because I did not want to be faculty, at least not now, that may be a goal later on. You know, when I did my doctorate, everyone in the room was, I want to be a professor, but I wanted to stay in leadership. And that was really my focus um, for my doctorate. But Unfortunately, once you have your doctorate, there aren't any professor positions <laughs> to apply for. So because the nursing schools are impacted, they have waiting lists, they, they don't have the funding to expand the program. 
but we have nursing students who are doing their prerequisites who want to be in a nursing program. There's just nowhere for them to go because we don't have enough staff because the programs are too small because they don't accommodate for a larger group. And so it's, it's quite cyclical and, and I don't know, you know, what the answer is to that. You know, we need the funding and the positions need to open up so we can allow more students in. And it, obviously it's been a tough couple of years just in terms of you know, for all healthcare professionals, but I especially yeah. I imagine for for nurses and LND nurses because of the pandemic and just the the extra pressures that were everybody was under. Right. I mean, this was unprecedented times. I I, I cannot um, you know commend our our staff enough that have been vigilant at the bedside, just coming in day after day and doing their jobs. I mean, I have no idea. You know, I can't even I can't even probably appreciate the magnitude of what they experienced but we are seeing staff now leaving the profession because of what they did experience over this yeah. last year so they're leaving the profession they're not even staying in nursing they just don't want to be in healthcare at all and um you know so that's just you know that's a, a huge factor that we didn't even calculate you know in the original uh numbers when we're looking at what the nursing shortage was going to be you know even in the next 10 years because it was already a dire situation before the pandemic in terms of workforce retention and, and you know, uh, mm -hmm. building morale and, and that kind of stuff. And then you throw in, you know, uh, a once in a lifetime pandemic, uh, hopefully once in a lifetime, uh, you know, that to really just, you know, heap on to, you know, what these people are already dealing with. So, I, I, you know, must be just, um, you know, I guess nobody really anticipated that. So. No, no, and our and the projection is one million nurses are going to leave the workforce in the next ten years. So by twenty thirty, we're going to lose a, a million. And this for a number wow. of reasons, right? Retirement, yeah. burnout, et cetera. But there is there are multiple studies that have been conducted by Dr. Uh, Linda Aiken um, uh, that are available, and most of them are for free. So I mean, and she has projected like this is going to happen. We're going to see this quite a devastating turnover very soon. Um. So do you feel that, you know, using, uh, you know, decision technology, decision help making technology, like, uh, you know, w w using AI, that that'll sort of help at least, uh, you know, like you said, you know, relieve some of that pressure on, on you know, folks who are feeling a lot of it? Yes, I, I think that, you know, as far as pressure is concerned, you, you have that reassurance, that justification that what you're seeing is correct and that you can make your decisions, you know, early and timely and escalate care if needed, et cetera. Um, but, but it still requires a subject matter expert at the bedside. I mean, these are, you know, it's, it's, it's simply calculating, you know, doing math behind the scene still requires that clinician to watch it. Um, but what we are seeing, and this is specifically through our clients who are going in this direction, is that they're taking our um, our product and, and putting it in a, a centralized location. So it's, they're staffing it with um, QRNs to watch the labor patients. So again, having that, that help on the other side. So they're using vigilance to monitor all the patients in their healthcare organization from a command center to watch all the other patients in the healthcare organization and giving that primary care nurse, you know, that reassurance that, okay, she may be busy, she may have another patient, she always knows that somebody else is watching vigilance for her. So um, I think that, and then we just recently did a, a, a time study with a, um, a, a large healthcare organization um, client of ours, and, and we're finding that 
the staff that is on at the bedside appreciates the command center, you know, benefits that we didn't even realize um, are far greater than the fact that, you know, not having anything at all. So, so I think that, um, you know, AI is going to go in that direction to assist bedside with having command centers like that in the future. And I, I mean, you know, obviously we, we were talking about sort of the, some of the statistics about, you know, the maternal mortality crisis um, in this country. You see, you know, I mean, you do have hope that, you know, with technologies like this and, and I guess more preventive measures, um, you know, to help mo moms, you know, who are, who are dealing with those sort of uh, other factors that may affect their pregnancies, that things will improve, you know, as we go forward. Right. I mean, I mean, even even our media is picking up on stories of, you know, what those factors are associated with the higher maternal mortality um, and morbidity rate. So socioeconomic lifestyle modification, um, um, early care, specifically for those moms that do suffer from the comorbidity, chronic medical condition associated with their pregnancy. Um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, right? So if we get them, get our patients who are in this higher risk category to a point where they're getting adequate care, um, you know, and, and they're seeing their primary care on a regular basis, um, you know, that would be wonderful because it will bring that patient in healthier, you know, versus the state that we're seeing them in now. But we also have to look at, you know, the things that come before that. Do they have access? Is it available? You know, do they do they have the education, um, the proper education to modify their lifestyle? And it's not everybody has a park to walk around right, in. Right. Not everybody has access to, you know, leafy greens and and lean protein. You know, so those things need to also be addressed simultaneously as we look at how do we get these moms the care that they need. Um, and it shouldn't be based on okay where you live and and how how much access you have. So right. that. If we can get that worked on, then our moms would be healthier coming to see us so, so that we're not trying to prevent something that could have been perhaps identified or um, treated prior to them coming into the hospital. Right. Well, Alana, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was a very uh, enlightening conversation, and uh, let's hope that uh, things will continue to improve. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. That wraps up episode 40 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.